Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be finishing up Exodus today. We are going to be talking about Exodus 35 through 40, which is the building of the tabernacle. So admittedly, when I came to this lesson, I was like, oh, okay, I guess we get to talk about some architecture and that'll be fun. But I think there's a lot more for us. If you love architecture, you might enjoy this. But there's going to be more than architecture in this one about the tabernacle. So we're going to talk a little bit about its significance and about what happened to allow the creation of the tabernacle and what that means for us today. Because it does have meaning for us today, even though we don't have the tabernacle. So let's jump right in. So basically, just context, the people are still in the wilderness. They are still in the shadow of Mount Sinai. This is still part of the giving of the law that God's been talking to Moses so they're still hanging out there in the wilderness. Um, like I said, Moses has been receiving the law. He's been giving it to the people. And then this last part, we're going to get the building of the tabernacle. And basically what the tabernacle is, is it's a mobile temple for the presence of God to descend and for sacrifices to be made. Okay, so um, we know that eventually once the people of Israel are in the promised land, uh, Jerusalem is in their control. And then during the reign of Solomon, they're going to build a, a permanent temple. By permanent, obviously, it's not still standing today, but it was in, designed to be permanent. Uh, but that's not going to be for about 600 or five to 600 more years. Um, so it's in like the 800s BC that that's going to be built. And this we're looking at probably the, oh, it's hard to say early and late when you're counting backwards, but it's like the upper 1300s or lower 1400s range. So right around 1400. So we're talking five to 600 years until they're going to have a temple. Uh, and my first thought was, well, if they were planning to go into the promised land, why did they need a mobile temple? Because they were going to go in there, right? If, you know, assuming, again, I don't want to spoil what happens in numbers, but they don't end up going. But then also, well, even if it took them, let's say, 10 years to get into a place where they could build a temple, they'd still need something, right? So the tabernacle had its purposes, um, and it's not going to be a long, it's going to be a very long time before they actually have a, a full designed permanent temple. So this is the place for them to uh, offer sacrifices. This is a place where the presence of God is going to descend. So we're going to actually talk about that a little bit. So as it goes into the building of the tabernacle first what we get is how the actual materials and parts of the tabernacle tabernacle were built so um, what we're going to see here is that god's going to make this request of the israelites that they give of their possessions and of their skills so starting in chapter 35 verses 4 through 5 it says this moses said to all the congregation of the people of israel this is the thing that the lord has commanded take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. And then it goes on to say some other materials that they need as well. So if you are wondering where they would have gotten such things, remember before they left Egypt, they uh, basically went up to the Egyptians and were like, uh, give me your stuff. And they did because they were very afraid of God and the Israelites. Um, so they gave them a bunch of precious materials. So now it's kind of, this is the time for those possessions to become part of what God is doing for establishing his worship in the wilderness. So um, the people are asked to give of these contributions. And we see here, it says, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So there's nothing really compulsory 
about this. This is a gift that is meant to be given out of generosity. And knowing the Israelites, our first instinct is probably like, oh, man, somebody's probably going to like hide their stuff and say they didn't have any or, you know, they're going to be real greedy or, you know, what have you. But actually, this is one of the finer moments for the nation of Israel, as we're going to see here. I'm going to read it just kind of a smattering of what we see throughout the rest of this chapter in terms of what people give. So uh, verses 21 and 22, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Then down to verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Now, I think you probably can notice the words that are being used here and how it's almost, it's just being driven in, like these people are being like stirred in their hearts. So it's all this idea that people are doing this willingly. So no one is giving out of compulsion. No one is giving out of, I guess I have to do it, but rather God's stirring in these people's hearts and they're coming to willingly and generously give of what hopefully they recognize God has provided for them. So it's not a, uh, it's not a, we're forcing you to do 10%. Instead, people are gladly in their hearts bringing everything that they have so that they can contribute to this place to worship God. And so then not only do we see that people are giving their goods, but we also see that people are using their abilities. So down into verse 30, still in chapter 35 of Exodus, it says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri and son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for every work and skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with the skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So we see that there's these two guys. Um, well, there's really this major guy who is very skilled and he has also been inspired to teach others to be able to use these crafts. So people are not only uh, bringing things, but they're also using their the abilities that they have. It says that um, this guy, Bezalel, has been given by the Spirit of God skill and intelligence and knowledge. So this God-given skill, he's using it for the good of the temple. So you're probably thinking like, okay, if these people are going to be so generous and kind... And they're going to give so much. This is probably one of those like 10% of the people did 90% of the work kind of thing, right? That's like, this is probably describing a small amount of the people. We know how these people of Israel are. They're not that helpful. But in chapter 36, verse 2 through 7, we see this kind of incredible call from Moses to where the craftsmen say, hey, you got to actually tell them to stop. So in verse 2, it says, Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, 
each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution or the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Okay, so it's not just with a generous heart, but also in abundance that the people are giving. And the, the craftsmen basically have to go to Moses and be like, please, it's too much. My workspace is getting crowded with all this gold and silver and fine things and yarn and all this stuff. Please ask the people to stop bringing it. So we see this just incredible outpouring of generosity, of a willingness to give, of abundance, uh, recognizing that the Lord has given and that they want to give back what the Lord has given to them. So that's the kind of labor and the kind of materials that they were dealing with as they went to build the tabernacle. So the craftsmen get to work. They start creating the tabernacle. Uh, remember, that's this mobile temple. So um, it's going to follow them around. We'll talk about kind of the uh, things they would do uh, when they moved it around. But they start creating the tabernacle proper and then also some specific elements that go into it. First and probably most meaningful of the elements of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. So you may be familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. It uh, represented God's presence so that it would come to represent this is where the God of Israel is. Um, and it was placed behind the curtain, behind the veil, in the most in the Holy of Holies. So that was the most innermost part of the tabernacle. It would come to be the innermost part of the temple. Um, it's behind this curtain. It is the innermost holy place where God's presence resides. And that is where they would keep the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, it would eventually it would come to hold three things that were representative of God's covenant with the people. Again, it's called Ark of the Covenant, not a an accident that was called that. Um, I've never seen Indiana Jones. I know that seems like a random thing to say here, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, I've never seen it. So there you go. Judge me as you will. But eventually they put three things to represent this covenant. One is the manna. So I'm sure that people kind of get a little nauseous when they think about manna, but it was in there because it does, of course, represent how God took care of his people. Has the Ten Commandments, not the original set. Remember, Moses broke that up, broke those out of anger last week um, when he saw the golden calf. And then also um, Aaron's staff, which uh, at one point God um, causes it to bud on the end as if it were still like a part of a living plant. So uh, a miracle that he did, this budded staff. Um, those things are going to be in the Ark of the Covenant. But yeah, so that's one of the things that they created. Um, created. I'm not. If, if you want to know what these things are made of, um, and even if you are interested in like a diagram of what the tabernacle looked like, a quick Google search will accomplish that for you. If you want to know what it's made of, you can read the um, 35 through 40. I think starting in verse or in chapter 37, it gives us uh, a nice. Well, even 36 talks about some of the tabernacle proper. So um, if you want to know what they were made of and things like that and all that kind of stuff, you are welcome to read that. I won't um, I won't hit that today just because of time. There's a lot of there's a lot of detail given. So you can get a lot of info there if you're interested. Um, but one of the things they make is the Ark of the Covenant. Another one they make is the Lord's table. So it's a table. It's right outside the Holy of Holies. It was designed as a dining type table. 
you're like, oh, is God going to sit down for a meal? Is not God a spirit who does not eat bread? That is true. He is spirit. He does not eat bread. However, it represented God's dwelling among the people. And it did have bread. It was called the bread of presence. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's this um, passage when David is on the run. I believe he actually eats some of the bread of presence, which Jesus uses as an way to scold the Pharisees, actually, because about Sabbath, because he's like, well, David needed the bread. The Sabbath isn't for man. Man, or man is made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for man. No, other way around. Man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. He uses that as an example. I believe it's the bread of presence. That's the bread he eats. So you would not be allowed to eat that bread generally. Um, but David and his need ate it. And Jesus basically said it was okay. But uh, we also know that it uh, from Leviticus, Leviticus tells us that 12 loaves were set out in representing the 12 tribes. So it represented this idea not that God did literally come and eat this bread, but this idea that it represented that God dwelt with his people and a part of dwelling in living in a place is that you eat there. So the table represented God's presence among the 12 tribes. And so this bread would be um, recycled and uh, new bread would be put out. Uh, I think it said every seven days. And then the priests would eat the bread before it went bad. So no waste either. This is as we, as they get these things a little bit more, um, systematized as the law continues to come down. Um, and then there's also a lampstand. So similar to the idea of the table, if you live in a place and it has walls and you are not totally exposed to the sun, you need some light. And the lampstand represented the, this lamp that you would have in a dwelling. And it provided light to those who worshiped Yahweh. So uh, then it goes into a, a discussion of uh, the altars that are made for uh, offering sacrifices. There's an altar of incense, an altar of burnt offerings, um, assume you probably know what those are. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's a bronze basin, a court. Again, all these things, if you read through here, you can kind of see them specifically. A quick Google search would give you a nice little, you could probably get an image with a nice little diagram if you want to help visualize it. Um, luckily, the detail that's provided, um, people who know what cubits are and stuff have helped and made it to where we have a pretty good understanding even in our standard, uh, standard measurement system. So, but that's basically what goes into the tabernacle, we also see um, in chapter 40, um, Aaron and his sons are anointed as priests. And this is kind of like the official anointing of the uh, priesthood of Aaron um, and the Levites. So um, there's just a lot of really important things happening of instituting like a formalized worship of God here um, with the building of the tabernacle the establishment of the priesthood, I believe that part of this, um, they also, uh, it references the making of priestly garments. So I think that was in maybe 39 um, that it talks about that. Yeah, chapter 39 talks about the uh, making of the priestly garments. So there's some specific things there too. Um, and so here's how they knew. Here's what we find out too from uh, chapter 40 is the way that they know um, when to set up the tabernacle and when to uh, take it away is if basically if the cloud, so the Lord would descend upon the tabernacle in a cloud. And so that that symbolized his presence being there, the presence of God being in the tabernacle. So if the presence of God was still on the tabernacle, they knew to leave it. And if the cloud ascended, that's when they knew it was time to pack it up and move. So they would pack this sucker up and then they would travel to wherever they were going. Remember, they're they're headed toward the promised land. So they are not going to be stationary forever and uh, they would set it up until 
uh, the cloud ascended again. And there you go. So that was kind of the way that they would go about setting up and tearing down this tabernacle. Now, I'm sure that as a person who does not worship in a tabernacle, you wonder, okay, what are we supposed to learn exactly from the tabernacle? I think there are actually some really important things that we learn from the end of Exodus here um, in quite a few ways. So first one, um, we see, again, in this construction of the tabernacle, we see many uh, ideals that God has for his people. This whole idea of the tabernacle really is even though, again, we don't worship in a tabernacle currently, we don't even worship in a, a single temple. You know, we have multiple church bodies, so there's differences in the places we worship. But the building of the tabernacle reflects what God's ideals are for his covenant people. What we see in the building of the tabernacle is a reflection of how God always wants his people to respond for all time. So first thing we see, again, and we talked about it, is the generosity. God wants his people to give, but out of a cheerful heart. And remember the repetition that we read just constantly. That people were stirred in their hearts. People were wanting to give generously. People were not being, were not giving out of compulsion. Uh, but they were giving out of a generous heart. And that's the same kind of generosity that God's covenant people, us, those who are um, believers who believe in the name of Jesus, that's the same kind of heart that God wants us to have in giving. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but, um, you know, 10% is typically um, our kind of our standard for giving. Um, and that's actually based on um, the Old Testament law. So 10% is kind of this uh, introduced in the Old Testament law. We don't actually get any sort of numerical value for giving in the New Testament, but rather this command to give out of a cheerful heart. The Lord loves a cheerful giver to be generous. But what generosity means for one person um, may be different than another person. So we are called to give always out of a cheerful heart. A person who gives 1% out of generosity with a cheerful heart is better than a person who gives the standard 10% while groveling in the kingdom of God. That's his desire. Now, I think just like a lot of the Mosaic Law, sometimes people need to be given a, a target to shoot at so they can know, well, how much is generous? Um, and so 10% is still a helpful rule of thumb, but um, that is not a requirement of the New Testament, but rather this idea that we should give out of generosity, out of a cheerful heart. Um, and we see a good uh, example of what this looks like in the New Testament in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you've probably heard this passage many times, and it's preached on a lot and applied variously to be generous. Eh, no pun intended. But really what we see here is that it, it's not this compulsion that people had to give up all their stuff if they wanted to believe in Jesus, but rather this heart of generosity that overcame the early church um, to 
provide for one another. They were, um, they were not forced, but rather they were compelled just by generosity to give up their possessions for those who were in need. And so really what I want us to take from this passage is just this idea that in the early church, the people were giving with glad and generous hearts. And they received food, they gave food, they broke bread together. And that's, that's really our model for giving, that we should give and, and also receive um, with glad and generous hearts. And so that's what God wants us to do. So just like in the building of the tabernacle, as God's covenant people came together for the common good of building the tabernacle, so God wants us to give generously. He wants us to have a heart of generosity rather than, you know, the 10%. That's more important is the heart behind it. That's what we see is a, a New Testament ideal as far as giving goes. The second way I think that we see a parallel from the building of the tabernacle to how that applies to us today is the uh, this idea of gifts. People were using the abilities that they had for the believing community of Israel, and they were doing it for the common good. They were using this natural ability for the common good and for the glory of God. So God continues to want that for us, but we actually have a little bit of a leg up. So these people were, I talked about how God's spirit used these people, how they had these skills, these abilities. Um, We have been given a mighty advantage in that every single person who believes in the name of Jesus, who receives the Holy Spirit, also receives gifts of the Spirit. And the reason that we are given those gifts of the Holy Spirit is so that we can use it for the building up of the body, the goal of the body to bring glory to God. Okay, so the reason we have a leg up is because we don't just have a natural inclination. We have the gifts of God himself individually bestowed upon each of us that we get to use in concert with other believers around us to represent the whole body of Christ. So natural skill, God level skill, God level skill is better. Okay. So in first Corinthians 12, uh, Paul is going to, uh, he's going to list several spiritual gifts. Um, and there's a couple other passages. There's one in Ephesians, one in Romans that are going to list some spiritual gifts as well. You, you may have seen like spiritual gift surveys before those can be helpful. Um, but in 12, 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So this idea that we are given these spiritual gifts not so that we can show them off, but that we can use it to uplift the whole body, that we can provide for the whole body and that we can help the whole body work together for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And that is exactly basically what's happening with how people use their skills to build the tabernacle. They did it for the benefit of the people so that they could have this tabernacle um, for which they could uh, worship God. And then it's also for the glory of God that these things would be built well, that they would be built with precious materials to represent how uh, important and wonderful God is. Um, and so they use their skills for the people and for God. So as we think about looking at the, or if we, as we read about the tabernacle being built, this is a picture that even though it was, you know, 3,500 ish years ago, this is the 
design that God has for his covenant community. So the covenant community of Israel that he's in the process of binding under the uh, old covenant or the Mosaic covenant that still have the covenant with Abraham. And then even we who also have the covenant of Abraham and we have the new covenant that is introduced by Jesus' death, his resurrection and his ascension. Covenant people, people that belong to God, this is how he has designed us to work together for the good of one another, for his glory. And then I think the final thing that we can see from this story of the tabernacle is this idea that it's always God's God's plan to dwell with us, that God's design for his relationship with his people is to dwell with his people. So remember when before Adam and Eve sinned, it says they walked with God, and then now we're here, and we see that God is having the people create a dwelling place for him. A, the tabernacle would be placed in the center of the camp, um, kind of this idea of, um, you know, you think about the the hub of a wheel and the people being like the spokes, God being at the center, being the most important. So the tabernacle was God's plan for dwelling among his people. And so we saw some of the things that went into it. There was this Holy of Holies, there was this Ark of the Covenant, there was this um, curtain that led into the Holy of Holies. And then what we get to see as we look in the New Testament, this idea that God's plan is still to dwell among his people. John 1, 14 says, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so this term for dwell has long been understood to have this relationship to this idea of tabernacling, which is not a real word. We've just made it up. But that's the idea. It brings in this kind of imagery of the idea that if Jesus would dwell, it'd be as if he was tabernacling amongst us. So really just drawing this line from God's presence in the tabernacle to Jesus' physical presence um, in uh, human form, fully God, fully man. And uh, there's some fun connections between the word um, because we don't want to, sometimes we can overstate things and we can be like, oh, dwellings like tabernacling. It's like maybe there are some good good connections. Um, one is the three consonants of uh, the Greek and the Hebrew word are the same. So in Greek, the sigma, kappa, and nu. In Hebrew, the shin, the kaf, and the nun. Um, that'd be S, K, and N for if we transliterate those to English. So they're the same for the Greek word for dwell and this um, Hebrew word for tabernacle. So there's that connection there. And Hebrew is um, very dependent on its uh, consonants more than its vowels. Um, original Hebrew would have, script would have been written just with consonants. And then some helpful people who wanted to help us know how to pronounce words went and added some dashes and lines and dots to um, make the... Uh, to make the vowel sounds. But so for them to share the consonants is a significant thing because Hebrew words are pretty much all consonants. So, but what we see is it's unlike the tabernacle in that Jesus tabernacling is more intimate and personal. And we also see that his death makes that permanent. So I say more intimate and personal in that he walked and talked and ate and hugged and cried with the people. He was right there with them. And the way his death made it permanent is this in Matthew 27, 50 through 51, right as Jesus dies, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple 
was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So this curtain that was in the temple, remember, this is now the more permanent dwelling place, though, of course, this is actually the second temple because the first one was destroyed when uh, the Babylonians took them over. But this later iteration of the tabernacle still has this curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. Um, but now at Jesus' death, this curtain that had separated this distinction between the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells, that the high priest is only allowed to go once a year as part of the Day of Atonement. And they would tie a rope around him just in case he died in there if he made a mistake. Now that curtain is torn in two, torn from top to bottom. So a signifying a removal of this divider, but it's one that's coming from the top down. Okay, this is authored by God. It's not that we broke it theoretically or um, symbolically from the bottom to top. Like we were so good, we were finally able to get to God. No, rather, God was so merciful that he split the curtain into this divider. This, um, this now intimacy that we have is authored by God. And then we see too uh, in Hebrews as Paul, or not Paul, excuse me, as the writer of Hebrews. We don't know who it was. That's why I say that. Um, as he's writing to people of Hebrew heritage about this idea, that's why he says this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we don't have the same benefit of the history of the people of Israel. But just imagine yourself being in the shoes of someone who was uh, from the nation of Israel that grew up with this oral tradition, this written tradition of um, the creation, the patriarchs, and the Mosaic law, and knowing that for thousands of years this separation had been in place. And now the author of Hebrews is writing to you saying, we have no more curtain based on what Jesus has done, and we are encouraged to draw near to God. What a, what a powerful, what a just absolutely mind-altering reality that is for someone who's always known there's places you go, there's places you don't. Um, God is holy and we are not, and therefore we are kept separate. But Jesus made the way that even a sinful people can draw near to God because of what he accomplished, because he took the punishment for that sin so that we have this ability to draw near to God. That's kind of how we've always known if we are not of a Hebrew ancestry, that's kind of how we've always known our relationship with God. We've always thought, oh yeah, we can draw near, like I can be close to God and things like that. We we can lose the majesty and the wonder that it is that God would make a way for us to be able to enter into his presence, to have direct access to a holy God as sinful people. It's only through what Jesus God, the same holy God that had this tabernacle, that had all these things that um, allowed for people to worship him, even though we were sinful. He made a way. He took it a step further. He made a way for us to not even have a, a separate space where we could worship him, but that we could draw 
near to him through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So as I was reading through the tabernacle um, passages and learning about it, and I was just overcome with this idea, what, what a loving and glorious God that we have, that holy as he is, would not just be willing to share a camp with sinners like us, but that he would take it a step further, that he would allow us to draw near to him all because of what Jesus has done. So the, the story of the tabernacle really is the story of what it means to be a covenant believer, what it means to follow God, that we give generously of what we have because we recognize that it's all God's in the first place. We use our gifts because we realize that they are authored in God in the first place, that we have an ability to worship God and that in that worship, we not only have a section that we can worship him, but instead we get to draw near and worship him directly. Music